Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Shushma Malik. We're talking to Shushma today about her new book. Um, Shushma is a lecturer in classics at University of Roehampton, and at the end of last year, Cambridge University Press published her incredibly impressive book, The Nero Antichrist, Founding and Fashioning a Paradigm. Shushma, congratulations on the book, and thank you for coming on to the show to talk about it. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Crawford. It's great to be here. (laughs) It's great to have you here. But before we talk about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? As we were saying before we began recording, it's not everyone develops an interest in the eschatological identity of Nero. How did you come to do so? Absolutely. Yes, no, it's a slightly odd thing to develop an interest in, isn't it? Um, No, I'm a Roman historian. So I studied at the University of Bristol for all three of my degrees. And when I was an undergraduate, I took a course on Nero that had um, a small part in it um, about Nero's legacy in Christian history and his interpretation in the Bible as well as as how it was presented. Um, And back then, it was something that sort of stuck in the back of my mind and and was something that I thought would be interesting to look at in more detail. I, I wondered how secure that evidence was, what what led people to interpret Nero in that way at that time. Um, but then I forgot about it um, completely, started doing my master's on another Roman emperor, Elagabalus, who's also fascinating, um, but then came back to the PhD level and thought, well, actually, this is a good time with the amount of space I had, with the brilliant supervisor I had, to um, be able to explore this in more detail and really um, start to understand why it is Nero became was used in this way, because it, it is, of course, unusual to see the legacy of really anyone um, go uh, in, in such a particular direction for such a prolonged period of time. So it was a, um, a sort of slow burner. Uh, to get to Nero's eschatological adversary, but I got there in the end. <laughs> Good. Well, it might have been a slow burner, but it was worth the wait. Uh, and <laughs> this new book is, is really compelling and, and really interesting. Um, Thank you. So as we work our way towards the book, could you tell us a little bit about how the early Christians felt about the Roman Empire, just generally to, to set the scene before we talk about Nero and the Antichrist figure uh, particularly? Sure. Yeah. So in terms of when we're talking about Nero, we're in the first century AD. Um, he was emperor from 54 to 68. So we're in the very early period after the, the foundation of Christianity. Um, of course, you know, we our dating system is based on on that that rough idea. But if you think that um, Christ was crucified, probably under the emperor Tiberius in the 30s, if we're sort of using a rough, rough dating chronology. Um, and then we're only about 20, 30 years later when we get to to Nero. So we're still in very early, early stages. But we do have, you know, some bits of evidence, things like the letters of St. Paul, for example, are very useful for trying to get a grip of, like you say, how Christianity was perceived in this period and also how Christians perceived 
the Roman Empire. Um, we are on scant evidence. There is some. We're on <laughs> limited evidence. But um, there was um, but what comes through Paul's letters and what comes through our sources is a sense of, um, on the one hand, uh, trying to live with the Roman Empire. So living with with the emperors. Um, Paul himself, for example, is a Roman citizen um, because of the uh, family that he comes from. And there is a um, an idea that, you know, Christians um, f- can fit within particular parts of the established structure of, of, of the Roman Empire and do um, fit in. Um, however, there's also quite a number who probably don't um, or don't want to fit in. And part of the sort of perception of early Christianity um, from the uh, Roman or pagan perspective, I should say, because they're all Romans to some extent, um, or, or, or uh, freed uh, citizens or, or freed members of the free members of the Roman Empire. Um, it, there's a, an idea also that um, perhaps the established sort of civic structures that are based on on that are very related to pagan structures traditional greco-roman religion is political as well as it is um you know the way we would think of religion um and and christianity sits outside of that um it's not that that roman society couldn't take in christianity as a cult it certainly could you know there are lots of different eastern cults in particular that the roman empire um, and and rome uh, very successfully uh, syncretized into its own structures um part of perhaps the problem that started to emerge not necessarily this early on but certainly started to emerge with christianity in that sense was the idea of monotheism so um that a a a god would want you to worship them and them alone um and that to a uh, pagan is a slightly odd concept, um, I think. And it's not alien. You've got um, Jews, of course, at, at this time as well. There's there's um, an, you know, a way for the Romans to deal with this. But um, as, as Christians in the early empire, um, if you wanted to, um, for example, make people your religion known or try and convert people, that would be a very difficult process to, to go through from, um, you know, the perspective of a, a, a someone who is pagan who doesn't necessarily um quite understand the idea of conversion in in that sense in the way that we think of it anyway as um you know adhering to just one god and 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 doing completely converting so there while there was a in the beginning an idea that the romans and the um and, and and christians should kind of live together should, should be able to function um i think it's in in acts where um there's a, a line about um honor peter says that's supposed to have said honor the emperor um you know because because the emperor is is has been put on on the earth by you know that structure has been put on the earth by god so honor him and then you will receive your benefit once you have died and, and whoever needs judgment will be judged by god um so there is that sort of train train of thought but then there's also um perhaps the more uh a Pauline train of thought, which is also to do with being able to uphold Christian values in um, in a uh, in in a structure that doesn't necessarily um, understand exactly or um, isn't that familiar with what Christian values really are. Mm. And that takes us, I suppose, very nicely to think about Nero himself. So he comes to power roughly twenty years after the crucifixion of Christ, uh, and and he's gone by about. AD 68, and maybe we'll talk in a few moments about how that happens. 
And 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 so really within what within within thirty years of the the crucifixion event, we have the emergence of this emperor who comes to be seen as embodying so many of the the traits of this composite figure that that we call the Antichrist, um, whose personality and characteristics are drawn from so many different parts of that body of writing. What why why did Nero or how did Nero come to have such a negative view? And how did he come to be identified as this biblical antichrist figure? Okay, so exactly as you said, Nero is is very close in proximity to this this formative period in in um, Christianity to some extent. Not only um, in the first century. I mean, it's, for Christian literature is still writing. You know, we've got Christian writers. We've got um, uh, ideas trying to formulate and, and fully kind of you know be articulated you know for another 100 years 200 years after after that as well but we do have um uh, what we have with nero is so an emperor who um was cl- clearly sort of controversial in his time um i don't think it's a case that you know everybody loved him i don't think it's necessarily a case that everybody hated him either i think like with um most political figures we can think of probably some people really liked him and some people really didn't um what's interesting about nero though is that um from the sort of source tradition that we get that emerges after his death so not necessarily when he was alive because there is um evidence we have evidence of there being a very mixed reception for nero in the histories um a jewish writer in fact named josephus in the um late first century says uh that there are many histories written of nero some are good some are bad some loved him some hated him um, some were being sycophants some you know were deliberately trying to character assassinate his character you know as we would expect there are lots of different lots of different receptions of Nero um what we have is the the very particular uh, sort of senatorial or imperial um hostile tradition um it's not uniformly hostile there are some good bits you can pick out certainly but overall sort of you know um not particularly pro Nero <laughs> tradition um that comes up um you know uh, about Seven, a couple of a generation and a couple of generations after his his reign. So here I'm talking about Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio. There are three narrative sources. Um, Tacitus is writing under the Emperor Trajan. Suetonius, probably around the same time, Trajan Hadrian. Um, and then Cassius Dio a little bit later. So we're talking late first, sorry, late second century, early third century under um, a, a different dynasty, the, the Severans. Um, so we do have um, a sort of much later um, establishing of a, a tradition about Nero. At the beginning, it was probably very mixed. But then one particular tradition that senatorial tradition gets uh, pushed forward and when we get to late antiquity by which I mean sort of the third fourth fifth centuries AD um, we start to get um, a, a sort of potted histories if you like or potted biographies of emperors um, these are things that uh, people who were just coming to literacy you know our, our population of the empire is expanding um, lots of different types of people entering the army that sort of thing and to get you you know the, the sort of um, Thank you. 
potted histories of these emperors, um, it's very clear from those that the, the Nero that emerges and the Nero that emerges is the one that we know, the, the tyrant, the, the um, completely uh, ma- uh, maniacal image of a, an ancient leader um, that we still see sort of in, in popular receptions today. And that became the way of, of thinking about Nero. And part of the reason I think why he then gets related to the Antichrist is because those uh, that idea of tyranny, the way that Nero encapsulates tyranny so wholly, helps people who are converting to Christianity or who are of different from different social structures understand what an antichrist means. An antichrist is destructive, like an emperor can be destructive, like Nero can be destructive. Um, and that's quite a powerful concept to play with as a, um, as for example, a, 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 a bishop or a, someone who is delivering homilies or someone who is writing commentaries on, on um, earlier Christian literature. How do we understand these prophecies? How do we understand the text we now call the Bible, but of course back then that canonical process was still going on. Um, how how do we make sense of Revelation? It's a difficult text. What do you, how do you do that? How do you relate that to a um, a general audience? Um, and Nero is extremely useful there for the reasons I've just outlined, but for one other reason as well, which is um, during his reign in AD sixty four, he there was a fire in Rome, and um, uh, a great number of buildings were destroyed, houses and, and so forth, shops. Um, and there were rumours going around because Nero was very enthusiastic about rebuilding Rome. It was sort of his his artistic dream, if you like, to be able to um, ar- architecturally plan the city. Um, and he did a very good job at it, even the hostile sources say so. But the, in, in, um, in his enthusiasm <laughs> um, for wanting to rebuild Rome, rumours started to uh, go around that he set fire to the city himself so that he could he could you know then carry out his grand architectural plan um and in order tacitus tells us in order to um uh, get rid of those rumors uh he decided to blame a group of people in rome who were not particularly popular who had sort of established themselves as as um sort of outliers of roman society they didn't quite um you know fit well with civic structures as we've, we've been talking about before people didn't quite know what to do with them and that was a group that was known as christians so tacitus tells us and um we so because then christians were killed by nero he um then was responsible for the first persecution what was called a persecution uh, but execution really the first execution of christians um since the crucifixion of christ and that is incredibly important to um the way that nero was then later understood and you explain in the book that that's really the context or the supposed context for the deaths both of peter and of paul and that i suppose leads us into a discussion of the death of nero himself because he too dies or does he? Uh, quite soon, quite soon after this, could could you just explain, as you do in the book, the circumstances around Nero's death and the stories that proliferated around that, and also perhaps um, move towards this idea of Nero of pseudo Neros who return, uh, and perhaps tell us what that's all about. Yeah, so you're absolutely right to bring in Peter and Paul because that is an, again a very important part of this. It's um. 
this this is established a bit later on so kind of in the second century i think is one of the first references we we see to this but um in the christian imagination um i would say are the the deaths of peter and paul get swept up with that bigger narrative of the persecution of, of the execution of christians so Peter is supposed to have been in Rome at the time, um, was and, and therefore caught up in in that that persecution. Um, Paul, of course, as we were talking about earlier, was a Roman citizen, so had particular rights, and actually wasn't um, swept up in that particular episode. Um, although, like I say, later in the Christian imagination, he was included in it, um, but rather he, um, or in that same time period. Rather, he is executed by Nero because he has been arrested for inciting a riot, brought to Rome and um, and is executed. So, yeah, uh, Nero is responsible, is seen as is, is then made responsible for those um, for the deaths of two, uh, you know, founders of the Christian church as well, which is which is um, not great for his legacy. Um, and like you say, we have got also very interesting rumours about how Nero dies and what happens um, at his death. And they're interesting because um, in our three narrative histories, um, we don't have his death in Tacitus, unfortunately, because we've lost the end bits of the work that it would be in the annals. We don't have books, um, uh, most of book 16 or, or books after that. So we don't have the last two years of his reign. But um, in Suetonius and in Cassius Dio, his death is very straightforward, actually. He um, he he uh, is declared a public enemy by the Senate. Um, he knows that he has to flee. Um, and then he realises that he has to, um, if he doesn't commit suicide, then he will be killed by um, the Praetorian Guard. So he goes to um a, a, he goes to manages to get to a villa of his freedman um Phaon, um on the outskirts of the city and there um we get you know very uh, theatrical and imaginative death scenes in the um sources uh, which are wonderful to read but um he commits suicide with the help of one of his freedmen um, in the end and that seems fairly straightforward he has a funeral it's a public funeral um he is buried on the um esquiline i think it is with his uh with with his um natural father so not the emperor but his his natural natural family tomb a uh, birth family tomb i should say and then uh he um he, so so that all seems fairly you know straightforward and not particularly problematic but when it does become what does become problematic is that in the east um we start to get people popping up saying nero is not dead i am nero <laughs> come follow me it's sort of spartacus but not quite um and we we have an account in tacitus actually in another another um book that he writes the histories which cover the years of the civil war um and and onwards um and we also have it in in cassius dio and a little bit of a reference in suetonius as well um that there were two perhaps three of these people so immediately in the context of civil war you can sort of see why that might happen there's a civil war going on in rome um there are emperors who actually follow nero so um the first emperor in that period galba is very much the you know against nero he positions himself as a return to um you know not the republic he's still an emperor but something that's a bit more traditional in terms of roman values not the young youth of nero he's much older he's an established general you know 
that sort of thing. Um, he's positioned himself that way, but he only lasts for about six months. The next two emperors, the next two people who become emperors, Otho and Vitellius, um, are both much more Neronian. Otho was a very good friend of Nero. Nero's second wife was married to Otho at one point, uh, Poppea. So their connection to Nero is, is quite close and, and they see themselves as his successors. Um, so in Rome, there's sort of a bit of a mix of a feeling of how to, what to do with Nero, I think, still at, at this point. So in the East, we get someone popping up saying, well, I am Nero and trying to come back to Rome and and claim the throne, essentially. Um, he distinguishes himself as Nero by being very good at doing things like playing the liar, which Nero was as well. Um, and. Um, manages to amass a following um, in the East because Nero was probably very popular still in the East. And um, so we're talking sort of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. He comes through through there. And then um, eventually the Roman army sort of deal with him quite promptly. Um, he gets killed and um, his body or his head, the Latin isn't quite clear, get taken back to Rome. And everyone says, oh, that does look a bit like Nero. <laughs> and then um, we sort of go go from there. And that happens. It's only really the first one that's that's sort of given the a, a proper go, if you like, that's taken seriously. But afterwards, it's a bit sort of, well, they're a few odd people saying saying they're Nero and they're dealt with very very quickly um certainly the sources sort of dismiss it as a um a a a, a, a sort of a weird occurrence um that is happening in the east probably due to Nero's popularity probably due to the, the fact that this is the end of the first dynasty so Augustus was the founder of the dynasty of the Julio Claudians Nero was the fifth and last emperor in that dynasty and um, so that's a sort of watershed moment in what's going to happen politically what's going to happen in terms of the system of emperors the principate um and it's so it's not necessarily that surprising that it's Nero that these things happen to also in the context of civil war um there's much more it's much easier to say i am nero i'm a, you know I, I i didn't die i fled what you saw that funeral was all a all a fake i actually fled and here i am i am back and and because of the confusion of civil war because of that context uh, perhaps someone thought that was the right time to do it but it certainly um as being the last person in the dynasty is calling to an end that period of, of the Julio Claudians um might possibly be why this happens um with Nero rather than um you know with anyone else. Mm. So the connection then is made very firmly in the minds of many Christian writers between Nero and this Antichrist figure. And your book explains that that, that holds for what the first four or five centuries and then gradually begins to dissipate. So why does Nero stop being the Antichrist? Yeah, yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's um it's it's uh Nero because of because that story that he was uh dead and then not dead gets changed into a sort of uh resurrection story. So uh, Nero raided Wewus, which means Nero returned from returned to life. Um, so that translates quite nicely into the idea of someone who was um, a, a, an emperor in Rome who died, who will be resurrected at the last um, uh, at the apocalypse, essentially, or, or in an eschatological context, in the context of the end of the world, to then come and fulfil um, that role again, that that persecutor role again, that um, a bringer of, of, of the apocalypse. 
the representative of the devil on earth. So that works really nicely um, as a way of, of, of talking about that. And the false Neros, of course, play into that so wonderfully as well. Um, and but like you say, we do get this um, uh, this this spread of the idea of Nero in this way, fulfilling this role, coming back at the end times to um, to 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 bring about the apocalypse um that carries on not uniformly accepted um some uh writers are more interested in that idea than others um lactantius for example you know talks about it in quite a lot of detail but um only it says only crazy people believe this um others are, are much more convinced um uh jerome for example when he's writing um a letter to um one of his correspondents a noble woman um she's asked him um what does paul mean in two thessalonians when he says uh, the man of lawlessness the mystery of iniquity this um the paul's second letter to the thessalonians and he says well he means nero this is this is who Paul was talking about. This is who will return at the end to bring about the end times. Um, so there was there were different different people responding to it differently, but certainly there was a, you know you can see a thread of of this um, idea not not going away. Um, certainly, um, and then we get to Augustine, and I do find Augustine very interesting because he is such a he he was so influential, particularly in the Middle Ages. So um, what Augustine said was was obviously taken very very seriously, and, and um, he did not think that Nero was the antichrist he did not think we should interpret paul in that way in particular um he did not think the mystery of iniquity uh, the mystery of iniquity and the man of lawlessness uh responded to a person he thought they were concepts he thought they were ideas um that that um were about the workings of good and evil in the relationship between the city of god and the city of man which is uh, and this comes in his his sort of great work the city of god um and so he understands things on a very different, you know, far less uh, literal, I would say, um, level. And that, I think, then becomes quite um, pervasive. We do get references to Nero as the Antichrist after um, after uh, um, Augustine, uh, particularly his disciples carry on with that. Uh, some of those ideas, Erosius, when he's writing his potted history um, and also uh, um, also. Quadwalt Deus, another um, another Christian author, makes mention of it, uh, reference to it as well. Um, and then it does come up in other biblical interpretations of Revelation in particular. So it does crop up again um, in later works. But what I find interesting is that there's no development of it after late antiquity. So we don't get new ideas about what this is. And it's mainly resigned to Nero is maybe the first beast in revelation is probably the first beast in revelation he is 666 that becomes the the way of of sort of understanding um that piece of biblical uh, literature for some um but not not very pervasively so in um of course in in the middle ages going into later periods as well um we get a whole sort of plethora of different ways of understanding the Antichrist. And we're not in that sort of Roman emperor context anymore. And um, Nero becomes less useful. And, and what we do see, for example, is other figures um, sort of being able to take up that role. For example, um, popes. So unsuccessful popes or popes who were decided that it should they should be 
perceived as unsuccessful after their deaths um, then become prime candidates for being constructed as the Antichrist um, in you know ways where you can make lots of names add up to 666 if you want to and you can bring out those traits of tyranny and, and murder and, and capriciousness and and all of those sorts of things to uh to to understand the antichrist for an audience who for whom um nero isn't necessarily as useful anymore um he is certainly the archetype is still a tyrant he's still very much understood as a tyrant but Perhaps a more a more relevant example would be in later periods a pope or, or an, another leader. Um, of course, you can imagine with the Reformation that goes in all sorts of different directions <laughs> as well. And the final section of your book, Shushma, talks about the way in which the idea of Nero's Antichrist gets revived in the nineteenth century. And there, as you explained, it's very much in the context of intra-Christian debate. Uh, and concern, I think, among many of your, well, several of your 19th century subjects, that actually more needs to be done to pull Christians together, and, and, and so to find an alternative Antichrist figure. And so you give us uh, a Catholic thinker, a Protestant thinker, and someone who's moving between the two uh, to, to help us see how that happens in the 19th century. Could you briefly just talk us through what that section of the book was all about? Sure. So this the 19th century reception of Nero is so fascinating because the idea is developed again. So it's it's picked up and it's run with in in a really interesting way. It's like you say by um, uh, my my examples are Ernest Pannon, who is is Catholic, Frederick William Farrow, who's who's Protestant, and then Oscar Wilde, who might seem like the odd one out there, but actually isn't because he is very interested in lots of the themes and he. Um, he knows his Hanan, he knows his Farah, he was, he, you know, we know from his book request lists and, and all sorts of things that he had copies of, of these books and he was a great reader of Hanan actually when he was at university as well. But the, the idea of what happens in the 19th century is, is that, um, in order to kind of un understand or, or to, to, give a historical perspective, if you like, to some of the um, sectarian debates that are going on. So think of the Oxford movement and the rise of Anglo-Catholicism um, in this period, uh, John Henry Newman, um, John Keeble, uh, these sorts of, of people. Um, we get also the idea of, of uh, papal antichrist coming back in as a reaction to that um, in quite a profound way. Um, we also have a particularly controversial pope at this time as well. Um, and in order to sort of give uh, come back at that, one of the things Ernest Cunon does when he writes his seven-volume history of Christianity is he dedicates the fourth volume to Nero, and it's called the Antichrist. And he says, "No, look, look back at your sources, look back at your Lactantius, look back at your Augustine." And um, even though Augustine doesn't believe him, he still cites him, <laughs> but doesn't believe it. But um, he says, "Look back at the at your late antiquity, look back at your church fathers." Um, it isn't the Pope, it isn't anyone that we, uh, contemporary political figures, it's Nero. Nero is the Antichrist. D you know, read your, read your sources and you will, you will see this. Um, but one of the interesting things that Hanan does is he, he not only talks about Nero coming back at the time of the apocalypse, Nero shall be the beast, he will be the Antichrist, 
um, at, in, in a context of revelation. He also makes Nero's reign itself feel like an apocalypse when he's describing it, because he's writing an account of Nero. His seven volume history of Christianity goes from the life of Jesus to Marcus Aurelius. In historical terms, he's in the first century AD. Um, Frederick William Farrer runs with this. Um, he really does. And, and he knows Renan's work as well. Cites him regularly, not just that book, but others too. His life of, of, of Christ in particular. And um, we, we get a re rendering then through um, Frederick William Farrer in a two volume historical novel called Darkness and Dawn or Scenes from the Days of Nero um, in, in historical fiction, so much more popular than Hanan's Antichrist, um, a, a conception of Nero's reign as the apocalypse. So that's a really kind of interesting and vivid and um, moving as well way of, of of talking about Nero's role putting Nero's role into a giving it a different different resonance making Nero himself not not a, a reborn Nero but Nero himself is the Antichrist during his reign um, he also um uh, Frederick William Farrer uh, rewrites sort of history, if you like, to say that John, so John was probably in, John of Patmos even, was probably in um, Rome during this period. He writes him in as a character. He makes um, Nero's stepbrother and uh, first wife, uh, who are brother and sister, uh, Britannicus and Octavia, a sort of proto-Christian figures. Um, he actually has, um, you know, one of them convert. And th there, there are these, um, you know, obviously very clear historical sort of like, like uh, uh, playing around here. He's taking um, quite a few liberties with the history, but um, he does create this absolutely extraordinary picture of a Neronian period as an apocalyptic period. Um, as, as John would then go on to write it in Revelation, he makes that very clear connection. Um, so that, then kind of goes on into later film history. Um, one of the novels that Farah influenced um, extremely was uh, Heinrich Sienkiewicz's Quo Vadis, which then goes on into film history. Um, of course, the immortal Peter Ustinov um, uh, plays Nero in, in the 1950s. Um, but before before we get there, as it were, one of the other people who uh, really plays around or, or tries to understand Nero from the perspective of um, religion, but also from the perspective of how that religious history fits with with Nero's um, reign is Oscar Wilde. And it might not sound like it's an obvious um, place to go with Oscar Wilde, but actually um, reading his letters in particular, um, this isn't this doesn't come through his plays. Of course, those familiar with his plays will be wondering what on earth I'm talking about. But um, a little bit in his um, in his picture of Dorian Gray in the chapter where he talks about Nero and he talks about um, the decadence of Nero. We get sort of some some understandings of how he's construing Nero as a um, an emperor, as a decadent figure. Nero was an artist as well. Um, he was um, sort of an emperor who acted on the stage. That's one of the reasons why um, some historians really hated him, uh, because to have an emperor acting on stage was was quite a scandal. So, for for. Nero to be on the one hand the emperor aesthete, he is the ideal for some of pe the people in the decadent movements, 
also to have this very profound uh, reception history that is circulating at the time, the 1880s, the 1890s. Um, Ernest Renan wrote in 1873, Frederick William Farrer, the early 1890s. Um, and and picture picture of Dorian Gray sort of comes in in between those, as it were, um, and you get you get the idea that lots of these ideas are swirling around in in Oscar Wilde's head, and they come out through his letters. Um, he talks about uh, his own per- Oscar Wilde talks about his own personal kind of. Um, relationship with both Catholicism and Protestantism, because on the one hand, he comes from a Protestant family, but Catholicism has always fascinated him. He um, plays around with the idea of conversion, particularly when he's at university at Oxford, at the Oxford of John Henry Newman. Um, so it's all sort of tying up together. But he um, he he very much uses Nero, I think, as a way to understand how these ideas can go together, how decadence and religion and sin and scandal work together in the body of one person, because that is also Nero. It, it's it's wild. He he sort of uses Nero as, as a way to, to talk about um, lots of the things that happen to him, particularly when he goes to jail and he writes about his life with um, Alfred Douglas, uh, the life that got him convicted of gross indecency in 1895. Um, he talks about his uh, his his productivity and his lack of it, and then he talks about his religion and, and the the way to understand um, Christ as the supreme individual. Um, it's philosophically, of course, um, driven. It's it's theologically driven, but it's also driven or also used to articulate those drivers. Is is Nero? He is he is a sinner. Um, and he is also the Antichrist, but he can be redeemed. And that's one of the things that Wilde says about Nero, that he can be redeemed. Um, and as Nero can be redeemed, so can so can Wilde, as it, as it were. Um, and Nero works wonderfully as a way to articulate all of these things, precisely because he is so multi-layered. He is the emperor of the first century. He's the emperor who got up on stage and acted. He is the emperor who is supposed to have killed his mother, to have killed his some of his wives, um, two of his wives. He is the emperor who... Um, on the other hand, was a, um, a popular with the people who, after his death, um, you know, some said that he was still alive, wished him still to be alive. He was popular enough to get a following in the He then becomes the Antichrist and um, all of those things together, um, which gets from entry, all of these kind of ideas floating around at work so imaginatively in Oscar Wilde's letters and in his in some of his works um in the way that he thinks about um all of these things that that he's a wonderful person to study for uh for Nero Hmm. well Shushma Malik it's been great talking to you today about your new book the Nero Antichrist founding and fashioning a paradigm just published by Cambridge University Press before we wind up today could you tell us what you are working on next what we might be able to look forward to seeing in the future (laughs) Oh, uh, wonderful. Yes. Um, so at the moment, I'm working on a uh, project that's um, 
uh, I'm collaborating on with a colleague at Roehampton and also with um, colleagues in, in Germany as well. It's it's a, a British and German project um, funded by the HRC and the DFG, and that's on corruption. So it's on it's called Twisted Transfers, and we're looking at ideas of, of corruption, um, which of course kind of have uh, some some relationships back to some of this um, uh, things we've been talking about as well. But I'm also thinking about how um, corruption is is articulated in in historiography of um, the imperial period, so under the emperors, um, in in various different ways. So in terms of power transfer of the emperors, but also in terms of um, other transfers that take place, for example, citizenship, the widening of citizenship, I'm very interested in as well. So uh, that's that's what's next. <laughs> great. Well, that sounds like a great project and exciting, oh, especially with the collaboration. You. But anyway, thank you for your time today and for coming on to the show to talk about this new book, The Nero Antichrist, Founding and Fashioning a Paradigm, just published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you for your time and take care. Thank you so much. Thanks. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.